Well, I must confess, as most of you know, I am from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I am a hick. In fact, when I went to, um, uh, we went on our honeymoon, uh, Kim and I did, we went back to Tennessee, which did include, by the way, a Tennessee football game at the end of the honeymoon. Um, and she just said, uh, she gave me permission at the end of the honeymoon. And uh, uh, so we were um, driving around for three or four days. She was meeting all my families. We were stopping at every Cracker Barrel, at every exit, known to man. And my, uh, Kim was quiet for a while as we were driving down I-75. And then she says, you know, it makes sense to me now. And I said, what? She says, well, before we came back to Tennessee and I met all your family and all your friends, I, I, thought, you were, um, I thought you had an accent. And now I, I think you're a hick. So um, I moved quickly from a guy who talks funny to, uh, that's what, Saudi Daisy, Tennessee. So um, when she was addressing the envelope, she said, Saudi Daisy, Tennessee. You're get, and it was Jimmy Joe Holland from Saudi Daisy, Tennessee. <laughs> that's the truth. Well, in the South, they understand romance. Amen. This is how, we're talking in relationships, we're talking about how, and this is how you would do it. If you're in the South, you would go something like this in poetic fashion. This is a poem about a a woman uh, or about a romance written from a Southern perspective. Some of this will go right over your head. It means a lot to me, okay? (laughs) Collards is green. My dog's name is Blue. And I'm so lucky to have found a sweet thing like you. Your hair is like corn silk, a flapping in the breeze, softer than old blues, and without all them fleas. <laughs> you move like the bass, which excite me in May, but you ain't got no scales, but I love you anyway. You're as satisfying as okra, just a frying in the pan. You're as fragrant as snuff right out of the can. <laughs> you have some of your teeth, for which I am proud. I hold my head high when we're in a crowd. On special occasions when you shave under your arms. (laughs) Well, I'm in hog heaven, just awed by your charms. Still, them fellows at work, they all want to know what I did to deserve such a pretty young doe. Like a good roll of duct tape, you're there for a man. (laughs) To patch up life's troubles and fix what you can. You're as cute as a June bug, a buzzing overhead. You ain't mean like those fire ants I found in my bed. Cut from the best cloth like a plaid flannel shirt. You spark up my life more than a fresh load of dirt. When you hold me real tight like a padded gun rack, my life is complete. Ain't nothing I lack. Your complexion, it's perfection. Like the best vinyl siding. Despite all those years, your age, it keeps hiding. Me and you's like a moon pie with an R.C. drank. We go together like a skunk goes with stank. Some men, they buy chocolate for Valentine's Day. They get it at Walmart. It's the romantic way. Walmart's a little different out here than it is back in the South. It's a cultural icon back there, but that's for another time. Some men get roses on that special day from the cooler at Kroger. That's a grocery store. That's impressive, I say. Some men buy fine diamonds from the flea market booth. Diamonds are forever. They explain suave and couth. But for this man, honey, these won't do because you're too special, you sweet thing, you. I got you a gift without taste nor odor. More useful than diamonds, it's a new trolley motor. <laughs> now, if you don't know what a trolley motor is, that goes on the back of your, your, your bass fishing boat. 
and you use that in shallow water, so that's very important um, <laughs> for guys like me. <laughs> well, there's all sorts of ways to get together, aren't there? I hope that's not your top pick. Um, and we've been studying for some weeks now, how in the world are we supposed to come together? And we've outlined over and over that the Bible is almost humorously silent on this. There's certainly no passage or no chapter that says, here's how to find a wife, here's how to find a man. Now, there are lots of, as we've said, descriptions of how that happened, but no prescriptions for how we're supposed to do it. So we're left on a great treasure hunt, and that's to find the the nuggets of Scripture that can come to bear in principle on who we need to be and who we need to find in the process of coming together. And in doing that, we've kind of outlined ten principles that provide a roadmap for our righteous relationship. Let me cover kind of where we've come so far, just by way of review. First of all, I'll start with C. We talked about the contentment principle. In other words, you have to start with being content. Find your happiness in God alone. If you're not happy with God alone, you'll never be happy with someone else. The contentment principle. If you're worshiping the idol of relationship, you're going to find you're going to get a relationship, and it'll be far less than you ever thought it was. On the other hand, if you're content with God and you find a relationship with someone who's content in God, that's a wonderful union of two people who can find their happiness through each other into God. Secondly, we looked at the conversion principle. And what we meant by that is we only should pursue Christians. If you're a believer, the only option you have is to pursue a Christian. Anything else is clearly forbidden and outside the the bounds and boundaries of Scripture. We're not to be unequally yoked, 2 Corinthians tells us. 1 Corinthians 7 says, marry only in the Lord. And you say, well, that's great when it comes to marriage, but I'm just dating unbelievers so that I can have missionary experience. I'm evangelistic dating. Well, the yoke means to to come together. It was a piece of wood on two animals going the same direction, and that's a dating relationship as well. So the contentment principle, the conversion principle. Thirdly, we looked at the character principle. That means you should... Uh, realize that means become and recognize that means find the issues of the heart it's not enough just to become and it's not enough just to find there's the realization of those issues in your life as well as the recognition of the character principles in another's life that means guys you need to know what God expects for you and your character you also need to know what God expects for, from a woman and her character that way you'll know what to look for vice versa with the girls fourthly we covered the cultivation principle Cultivation principle, which means to honor one another and cultivate that relationship with each other as spiritual siblings. You have a relationship to one another as spiritual siblings that precedes and will postcede any relationship you have. You have that relationship with a Christian that's your brother and sister in Christ right now. You may get married, you may have children, then you're going to die, and then you're going to go to heaven, and guess what? You'll just be brothers and sisters then as well. So that should be cultivated at the finest most minute detail of the one another's of their scriptures. Fifthly, just still reviewing, we covered the chivalry principle. That means that you should understand your relational roles. God has called men to be men, and He's called women to be women. And the Bible, in no uncertain terms, explains exactly what a man is supposed to be and who he's supposed to be, and exactly what a woman is and who she's supposed to be. And we're to know, again, our own role as well as the role of the other, so we'll know what to discern in realization and recognition. Well, that brings us up to number six. We can jump in today. And that's the companionship principle. The companionship principle. By this, I mean 
embrace God's purpose for marriage. Embrace God's purpose for marriage. Marriage is intended in the Scripture to be a companion relationship. We won't take the time now because we've already done it several times in our series. But if you go back into Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4 and the beginning of the family and the institution that God ordained with husband and wife and children to follow, you can see very clearly that God gave Adam, the first man, a woman, Eve, so that they could be companions. They could share life together. So how can we implement the companionship principle? Well, the first thing you need to do is understand God's purpose for marriage. You better understand God's purpose for marriage. And let me tell you that no matter what you think, if you begin studying God's purpose for marriage and you compare that to your own uh, just natural understanding of marriage, you're going to find that those are far, far apart. Let me give you a little statement regarding God's purpose for marriage. And I'll repeat it for you. God's purpose for marriage is this. To serve represent and glorify Him with a spouse in ways you could never do so alone. That's God's purpose for marriage. To serve, represent, and glorify Him, glorify God, with a spouse in ways you could never do so alone. God did give the woman to the man to, to uh, satisfy His being alone. By the way, that's far different than satisfying his loneliness. Those are two different issues. God invented marriage to solve man being alone, not lonely. And he did so with the most amazing gift. And that's the gift of marriage. God's purpose is that you glorify him through marriage. It's not just for you. Now, let me say this it's a wonderful thing to enjoy. I like being married a lot, a whole lot. In fact, studying this in the last few weeks has just made me and Kim, Kim and I just kind of look at each other and go, isn't it great not to date? That's kind of the, the rhyme that goes around our house. Isn't it great not to date? All the people married here are going north and south. Amen. It's just wonderful to be married. I love being married. But marriage wasn't given to me or to Adam to solve my problem of being lonely. You know who solves that problem? Only one person, and that's God. It was to solve me being alone in the pursuit that God's given us. What do you mean by that? Alone for Adam meant to cultivate, keep the garden. Alone for me means, in my situation, as a pastor, as a leader, as an overseer, as a shepherd, to accomplish God's work through my life, God knew I would need a helper. I couldn't do it alone. I could glorify Him and minister on behalf of Him and represent Him in ways with my wife that I could never do by myself. Footnote. 1 Corinthians 7 is very clear, though. A single person has an advantage in respect to their ministry to even a married person. They are accomplishing their ministry alone. It's just different. They have undistracted um, devotion to the Lord and unhindered ministry before the Lord. However... You know what? I get to enjoy this a step beyond that as a married person. Ephesians 5 tells me that my relationship with my bride is supposed to be... It gives me just the chills to think about. It's supposed to be the stage that God sets up and builds on which He demonstrates the gospel. People are to look at mine and Kim's relationship and look at my leadership and say, that's how Jesus loves. That's how Jesus would lead His bride, the church. And they're to look at Kim and her following and her submission and how she 
comes alongside me and helps me and say, that's how Christians should respond to their head, Christ, in the church. I love to read. And it might surprise you, I'm a little bit of a softie. I love poetry. I absolutely adore uh, words and thoughts that are carefully crafted and put into to poetic uh, form because it really draws out the creative juices, not only in the writer, but in the person reading. Person reading. Calvin Miller wrote a book called A Requiem for Love. I don't support all the theology in the book, but it's a masterpiece of English uh, poetry as well as, and Christian poetry, as well as giving great insights into the Adam and Eve relationship. Let me read you a portion of that, can I? What's just happened, if let me catch you up, is uh, uh, God has just made Eve, and she's lying there before Adam. Her beauty, quote, her beauty reached inward and stirred a kind of reverence Adam had never felt before. She seemed alive, asleep, about to rise. He studied the softness of her face. Her eyes were closed, and yet he sensed that they were windows waiting to be opened unto life. His eyes fell on her waiting, ha- waiting hands, promising touch. Suddenly, he loved The emotion flew at him. He felt it from the inside moving outward, rising with power and soul need. Father, he breathed, and his breath was nearly prayer. Listen to this. This is my need, beckoning me to greater worship. At last, a love that touches flesh with flesh. Let her lie no longer, begging breath and pulse. He paused, reflectively, then asked, Why only now, Lord, have you shown this perfect answer to my emptiness? I gave you yearning oneness to define your need, God said. In your hungering to be touched, you found out who you were. Adam reached out to this clay dead form. Oh, bid her live for me, Lord. As a lioness to a lion, as a stag to a doe, as a sire to a dame, as intimacy and all of hope. I will, son. But first, gaze in wonder and study all that she is. Dim time beyond the light of vision will teach all the later generations her full worth. She is woman. She is Eve. In excellence created, see the face of love. This next part is the part that, if I can allow you into my own relationship, this next section is what I chose to read when I asked him to marry me. Behold her, woman. Being from man's side, liberated from harsh manliness, given wisdom unto motherhood, tenderness for her calling as a wife, music for the lullabies that shall teach her little ones to sleep with courage, strength for lonely widowhood if life should brutalize. Her power will be in seeing all your fast-moving eyes shall miss. She will feel the pain that you hurry past. She will move in gentle inwardness that sees so often past your logic-driven days. Call her woman, give her honor, lift her up, and she will grow secure and protected by your affirmation. And she will school you in self-worth. End quote. When God created the man and the woman, He created them to enjoy one another in a way that no other relationship on the planet can offer so that they can serve and worship Him together. 
if I can allow you to come just one more time into my own engagement experience. When we got engaged, I, I gave Kim a, a Bible with her new name that I, I was a gamble. I had hoped it would be her new name. Uh, when I was asking her to marry me, it had Kimberly Sue Holland on it. And it had this in the front. I opened it, and the ring was right in the middle to this verse. And I opened it. A guy brought it out on a silver platter, and it was at this little place. We had a, we had a tea. We went to a tea. And um, uh, uh, I like tea. <laughs> it was a high tea at the Rose Tree Cottage down in Pasadena. We're sitting there. I rented the whole room. There's roses, the whole thing. It was a lot of fun. And, and then we had tea, and then he brought out this, her, her Bible on that. And I opened it up, and the ring was on a ribbon right at this verse. And I said this, I will bless the Lord, Psalm 34 verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. And then I said this, Kim, oh magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. That's what we want to do. That's what God intends, I believe. That you exalt His name together you serve Him together in ways that you couldn't apart. It's all about service to the Lord, representing Christ to the world. It's about God, not just about yourself. That has to be underlined, lest you're going to look for the wrong things. You're going to be looking for how you can get, rather how you can give, not even to her or him, but how you can give to God through this relationship. So what should we do then? I'll give you another little point of reference. After you've understood God's purpose for marriage, see premarital relationships as the testing ground for marriage. Please understand that. See premarital relationships with the opposite sex as the testing ground for marriage. You can only use dating as the testing ground for marriage if you understand marriage. That being true, let's go back to the purpose of marriage and see how it affects us in a test of dating. I said that marriage is God's purpose is to serve, represent, and glorify God with a spouse in ways you could never do so alone. If that's true, then let's back that up into dating. Does a relationship move you to serve God? Does your relationship as a sibling, as someone developing and blossoming into a romance, does that relationship motivate you to serve God or does it begin taking your time away from God, taking your time away from the church, taking your time away from Bible study, away from the people of God? Does the relationship call you to represent the gospel? Is there a purity in that relationship? Then that can be a stage on which the jewel of the gospel can be displayed. Do you glorify God as a result of the relationship? Students, you've got two choices. This relationship is going to move you toward intimacy with Christ or it's going to hinder you and move you away from it. There is no middle ground. Movement towards God is movement up a giant hill called our flesh. And you can't stand still. You can't stay on that bicycle going up that hill standing still. You're either moving forward or you're falling down backwards. You can't stand still with your feet on the pedals. The best way to find out about this companionship principle then is to find out if you can serve and, and uh, represent and glorify God in the relationship by spending time with each other. A lot of time. A lot of slow, well-observed time by you and others. Can you give me two big words? If you're taking notes, write them in giant, all caps. 
Go slow. What do you mean by that, Rick? You know what I mean. You meet her in the cafeteria. Wow. Of course you're attracted to her for all the right reasons. Having seen her from afar. The next day, you sit closer to where you think she's going to sit. Wow. The next day, you happen upon her table. And she sits at the end. Wow. The next day, you sit at that end. And she sits at the other. No, she sits <laughs> down close to you. And you start talking. And you know what it's like? Have you felt it? Your heart starts going, and your hands start getting sweaty, and your mouth gets dry, and you're just thinking, This is the one! I'm convinced! I mean, look at her! And she's thinking, This is the one who won't leave me alone. <laughs> you develop that relationship, you go out. You spend a, a week or two or whatever with each other, and then you hold hands, and it's like bolts of electricity. Ah! This is love! <laughs> this is obviously someone's biography. <laughs> is that Raymond? Who is that over there? Anyway. <laughs> This happens, and about a, a month or two months into this, you're already saying, well, we need to talk about marriage. McFly, what are you thinking you want to talk about marriage? You don't know that girl. You don't know that guy. Spend time with them in lots of contexts. See if they can be your companion unto God, not just your companion unto your own selfish desires. This is about ministry. It's about eternity and affecting eternity, not just about you getting lollies from a relationship. Can I be brutally honest? All those lollies and those... Ah, when you get married, it's like, hey, who's going to change the baby tonight? You or me? That's the... Oh, who's... It? We're about to think about that real quickly. All of that electricity stuff, sure it comes back. Sure, there are slices of that, but it's deeper than that. It's actually more wonderful than that. It's more precious than that. Check out the person in biblical context, in, in rather as many contexts as you can. Don't just check them out regarding how they look with their makeup on or off or whether they have good hygiene, but regarding the true heart for the things of God. Can I ask you this? When you start getting interested, say, what kind of father would that be to my children? What kind of mother would she be to my children? You say, well, how can I know that? Go back to the character part. Look at her around children. Look at her around people. Watch her around mom. See if she's a learner. When looking at that man and saying, would he be a good father? Would he be a good husband? Do the people around him respect him? Do they see him as a man of integrity and honorable? Can they slap Psalm 15 right on top of his life and it would match? Is he a man of character? Well, that leads us to the next C, the next principle on a roadmap to a righteous relationship. And that's the commitment principle. The commitment principle. And this means simply this. Become a biblical lover. Become a biblical lover. All of us are lovers. We love things. And I told you a few weeks ago, you, know, you can say I love my cat, I love ice cream, and I love my wife. And something just doesn't sound right about all of those being in the same proximity. 
Love means so many different things to us. You need to become and understand how to become a biblical lover. So let's do this then. Understand the nature of biblical love first. Understand the nature of biblical love. Tina Turner asked a great question in a popular song a few years ago, right? Was that bad? What's love got to do with it? And that's the line that most people remembered. But you know what's even more than that is what came later. She said, what's love but a second-hand emotion? Is love really a second-hand emotion? I don't think so. The Bible doesn't let us think that way. It's sad to say, but this has become the consensus of so much of what's going on in the name of love in our culture. Is love really that feeling that you feel when you feel like you've never felt this way before? It's a song from a few years ago. That's love. It's a feeling you feel when you feel like you've never felt this way before. Well, I had some pizza last week that made me feel a whole lot like that. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say anything about being in love. The Bible says nothing about falling in love. What does that mean anyway? I'm in love. Does that mean if you're not, then you're out of love? Or you're beside love? I'm standing here beside myself. And what does all that mean? What does it mean that you fall into love? There's almost a passive element to it. I I fell in love. Well, those are nice romantic Hollywood terms, but they have very little to do with the Scriptures. Again, as Christians, we have to turn back to the Word of God to define love. Let me give you a little background. Turn, as as, uh, I'm telling you this, to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. The writers of the New Testament had basically, as they were writing out the, the Scriptures, in the arsenal of vocabulary in the Koine and even classical Greek of that day, they had about 27 different derivatives of love, the word that's translated into English love. I remember taking classical Greek at the University of Tennessee and looking at all the words translated love. In the back of your, your text, you have the words, you have dictionaries. You have the Greek word and what that means. Then you have the English words and the Greek words. Well, if you looked up the Greek word of love, there were like all of these different Greek words. But basically, they all fall into four families of words. The first is storge. It just means family love, a familial love. I love my brother, I love my sister, or my mom or dad. Love my children. It's a familial love, storge. Then there's phileo, which is a biblical term used. And that's familial love for, excuse me, heartfelt, tender love that can be for your family or anyone else. It's a tender affection. It engages the emotions. It engages the affections. It engages the desires and the volition. Then there's the word eros, from which we get the word erotic. It's sexual desire and lust. It's desire based on what's attractive in the object. Did you get that? Eros, or erotic love, is desire based on that which you find attractive in the object. I find it very interesting that that word isn't even used in the New Testament. And then there's the workhorse of the New Testament, the one that the apostles used to describe Christian love, the ones the apostles used to describe marital love, the one the apostles used to describe familial love, and even familial sibling love between brothers and sisters in Christ. It was a word that they just used a lot, and you'll know why after we get the definition. And that's the word what? Agape. Let me give you a definition. An unconditional commitment 
to an imperfect person. That's the essence of agape love. An unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. That's why this principle is called the commitment principle. Love is a commitment. Agape is the love of marriage. Ephesians 5 uses that word. It says, husbands, agape your wives. Love your wives. And the commands for love there uh, in that relationship is the love that a married couple should share. It's not based on emotion. It's not based on selfish gain. It's not even based on attraction. Now, right now, you've got both feet on the brakes and saying, wait a minute. If it's not based on emotion or attraction, if it's not based on any kind of desire, then what in the world am I supposed to base this on? Well, let me say this in qualified. I'm not saying that you should not be attracted to the person you marry. I'm not saying that you should not be attracted to the person you're interested in. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. It's not bad. It's not wicked. It's not evil. That's fine. But if you're choosing that over the commitment of what deep Christian love is, you're going to be really sad if something happens. You could be like a friend of mine who got married six months after he was married. His wife was involved in a horrific crime in which a guy reached in a window, grabbed her purse, and took a knife three times and just slashed her face. After months and months of plastic surgery, she looked, she was a beautiful girl, looked nothing like she did in the beginning. And you know what? He adores her. He loves her. Because his love was based on more than attraction. There's nothing wrong with being attracted, but if that's all you have, if that goes, what happens? What happens if you're attracted to this girl, guy? Guys, and she gets married and develops a hankering for ice cream and Oreo cookies at midnight every single night. And looks a lot different six months into marriage. Are you going to say, hey, you know, you got one choice, Oreos or me? Let's make a choice here. <laughs> also, the same works in reverse, okay? What are you attracted to? What's the nature of such love? What does it look like? I mean, I'm, I'm saying it's an unconditional commitment, but what does it look like? How can you describe it? Well, right here in 1 Corinthians, Paul describes it for us. And in these four verses, the Holy Spirit explains what love is according to God, and He does so by way of a simple list of 15 items. And I wish so much. This deserves an entire sermon or series in and of itself. Um, we ought to be getting our scuba gear and kind of swimming deep to see what's here, but we're just going to take a stone and throw it across the surface, Okay. We can't get very deep. I just want to show you a snapshot, 15 snapshots of what agape love looks like. Now, you say, Rick, this is about love for brothers and sisters. This is a love for Christians and between Christians. Yeah. It's also the same word in Ephesians 5 used to love each other as husband and wife. What does it mean? First of all, it says love is what? Say it with me. Patient. Literally long-suffering, not getting angry when you're treated wrongly or unbadly. Now, why would the list start with patience? I think I know why. Longer I'm married, I know why from watching my precious. She's going to love me. I know for a fact that the greatest virtue that she has to struggle with is patience. You know why? She's living with an imperfect person. Imperfection covers all of our relationships except our relationship with the Lord, right? Because of that, we need to be patient. 
That's why there's almost no greater need in a relationship. You have premarital counseling, but even more than that, Kim and I like to meet with people after they get married, post-marital counseling, because then what you do is you say, well, how, how are you patient? How, how are you loving? How are you overlooking sin? How are you covering sin? How are you rebuking sin? What's it like living with that sinner? Well, footnote on that, if you don't know the weaknesses and have seen the sins and know how to deal with a person who is um, uh, uh, in a dating relationship who's sinning and you've had to deal with that, if they're just all wonderful before you get married, you're not ready to get married because you don't know them very well. We're to be patient because God is so patient. It's the essence of love. Out of, I believe out, out of patience, all of the rest flow. Patience could be incorporated into every single one of the rest of the attributes of love. We're to be patient because God is patient. You remember maybe Robert Ingersoll, the brilliant atheist. Is there such thing as a brilliant atheist? Anyway, of the last century, stopped in the middle of one of his lectures against God, took out his watch and, and held it up to, to the audience and said, I make this challenge. I'm going to give God five minutes. Five minutes to, to strike me dead as I'm mocking him. And he would set his watch and for five minutes would just consistently blaspheme and mock God over and over as deeply and as cursedly as he could. At the end of the five minutes, he was still standing. After which he would keep on mocking God in these lectures. Well, he brought his roadshow, his philosophical uh, roadshow to a certain city. Some people went and heard it and went and heard it and went to that great Christian Theodore Parker who's known for his insights in the scripture and said, this man did this, what do you think of this classic? And the gentleman said, did that gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of God, the eternal God, in only five minutes? When we love patiently, students, we love like God loves. Then he says to be kind. Biblical love is kind. That means doing something for someone else's use, someone else's benefit. It's not selfish. Kindness is the flip side of patience. Patience takes the injuries of others and kindness repays them back with good deeds. That's the flip side. It says, no, it's not jealous. Jealousy destroys relationship. Superficial jealousy says, I want what you have. Deep-seated jealousy says... I want what you have so much, I wish you didn't have what you have, and I'll do anything to get it from you. You know, there's, whole, there's not a whole lot more ugly to me than to see a relationship between a guy and a girl where jealousy dominates. It's so immature. It's so rank. Hey, did you talk to her? Come on. Did you, did you talk to her? I saw you talking to her. What'd you say? What'd she say? What are you talking about? Did you talk to him? I can't believe... Did he, talk, did he call you? Does he have your number? I'm disconnecting his phone. What is he doing? You guys know in relationships like that? It, doesn't that just want you to be like... It makes you want to be like them, doesn't it? Oh, the joy. Where were you? 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 Who are you talking to? Ah! Insecurity. How about this? Love's not jealous. You know what it says? I want the best for you, even if what's best for you isn't me. Because, by the way, if you're not what's best for me, God has something better. Don't tell them that. <laughs> but that's the reality. There was a girl I dated in, uh, in college uh, who I, I thought, man, she's the one. We were talking about marriage. I thought, man, she's pretty awesome. And the relationship went south for a lot of reasons, and we broke it off. I came to seminary, and I was... You know, I was 
the president of the Butter Club then, bachelors till the rapture. I will never get married. No way. Women are, they have their place in this world, but not in my place. I mean, I was just done with them. You can tell what happened in this relationship, can't you? I wasn't bitter at all either. I was just working through my emotions. Well, I got involved in the church here. Actually, uh, in, I was an intern in the junior high ministry. And I kept coming to these staff meetings and kept going to these things. And then there was this girl over there. She was really, really good looking. I admit it. It was Kim. I thought that at first. I went, wow. And so then I would start coming early and finding, because uh, I knew where she sat. And I, would, I did the whole thing. You know what? Let me tell you this. To, this, to think that I would have settled for that other girl... Instead of waiting on Kim, I didn't get married until after I was 30. And this was back when I was 24. To think that I could have missed her because I had settled, it just... Ugh. Waiting was good. Waiting was worth it. Don't be jealous. If God has someone else for someone else, let him go. Let him go. Encourage it. Because God's got something else for you. And if he doesn't, he's still got him for you. And you can't lose that way. Love doesn't brag. Next, uh, the only bragging that should be done from a Christian's lip is the praise of God. Jeremiah 9 tells us that. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, the only true God. Girls, watch for the guy who just... You know, drives with, with his arms flexed, you know. I've been working out lately. You can't tell much, but I have been. He comes to the door and goes sideways because he just can't think he can get through. Uh, where is she? She's uh, over there. You know that you're laughing because you know these guys, right? Like the... Shake your... I mean, they just... It's just bragging. Maybe I'm jealous, okay? <laughs> Girls especially, be careful. You're, you, you can boast in your own way, but be careful of the guy who's most interested in letting you know how he's the hero of the planet more than he wants to get to know you. And again, we could spend a lot of time on all these. Uh, love doesn't act unbecomingly, literally rude. It's not rude. It acts appropriately. It doesn't seek its own. That's rank selfishness. It doesn't seek its own. There's an old um, legend of a priest who had a dream. And he said he had, uh, uh, this was back uh, um, many, many years ago, just after uh, Christ had ascended. And this, this was a, I said priest, rather a pastor who had um, a dream. And he woke up and he was just kind of startled by it. And the dream was that he died and gone to heaven. And in heaven, there was a giant vat of stew. Now, in that context, stew was, a, was the most desired state. It was a wonderful meal. And he said all these people were around the stew. But he could look over and he could see a snapshot of, of hell with the same pot of stew. Two pots of stew, two people gathered, gathered around them, one in heaven, one in hell. He said, I looked into, into the place that was hell and there was a problem. And I got closer and I saw the problem. And that was everybody's arms were spoons. And they were about six or eight feet long. And they would dip into this wonderful stew and never be able to bring it to their mouth. It was impossible. 
He said, then I looked over in heaven and everyone was happy and satisfied. You know why, right? They were feeding each other. That's the nature of love. Students, if you're serving one another, you both get loved. If you're loving one another, you both get served. It's a wonderful thing that God has created. Love is not provoked. Next, it doesn't respond to anger. It's the peacemaker. Kim and I, I, I can't keep our relationship out of this because it's so close. I hope you don't mind. But we have a, a race. When we have getting, not, let's not call it arguments. We have disagreements. Um, uh, we see things differently. We kind of have this under, uh, understood uh, race. It's a race to softness. Who's going to stop and say, will you forgive me first? I usually lose that. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Literally, it keeps no record of wrongs. When a person asks your forgiveness, it's gone. Love doesn't pigeonhole you into this frame that you can never escape from. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. In other words, it doesn't pursue sin. It doesn't laugh at sin. It doesn't get entertained by sin. It doesn't commit sin. It holds purity at a high, high place. It doesn't rejoice in being sinful or unrighteous. Next, it rejoices with the truth. Biblical love rejoices with the truth. Love is attracted to the truth of God. There's a magnetism that can only be satisfied with God. That's why you ought to be looking for people who are looking for God. People who are attracted to people who are attracted to the Word of God. This says love bears all things. That means it doesn't... It, uh, love does all it can to cover up and help bring sin to repentance. It covers sin. But then when it sees sin, it rebukes it privately. It deals with it biblically. It believes all things. That means it believes the best about all things. It believes the best about each other. You don't just hear something or see something, but you say, hey, help me understand. I want to understand. It believes the best. And then it says, love hopes all things. That's not wishful thinking like it's hopes, but it's longing for the best for one another. Then last, it says it endures all things. The Greek word here is a military term that... That means to be positioned in the middle of a serious battle. Love continues to love no matter what. Remember, it's an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person, and you don't back off of that commitment. Now, I hope you've heard all this and say, said, wow, that kind of love sounds like it could only be fulfilled or primarily be fulfilled in a marriage. Good. Let me give you another point. You better know what love means. Know what saying, I love you, means. If you say, I love you, you better define what that means. What does it mean when you use those three fateful words to a person you're interested in? I love you. I love you too. What does that mean? Here's some possibilities. It could mean this. I have strong feelings for you. Okay, that's okay. But that's not love as we've just described could mean, I like you and I think you're special. Okay? But that's not biblical love as we just studied. It could mean, I'm committed to you for right now. But that's not biblical love as we've studied. Can you imagine Jesus saying in salvation relationship, I love you now. Be good. Some people live like that. Love, uh, saying I love you could mean, I want something from you. Okay, but that's not what biblical love is. Saying I love you could mean, I want to know how you feel about me. You know what that means. You say I love you and wonder if they're going to say it back and how they say it if they say it. It's the baited I love you. Love you. I, I love for somebody to say, great. <laughs> Good for you. 
I'm thrilled. In other words, I'm going to say I love you, and I'm very anxious to see what you're going to say back. However, God's Word is very clear. And based on it, God's example, God's commands, God's wisdom, all points to the fact that I love you should involve, listen to me, serious and permanent responsibilities. I love you is flipped around too flippantly. I firmly believe you shouldn't tell a person you love them until you're ready to marry them. And I think I have biblical justification to say that because it doesn't talk about that except there's two kinds of agape used. Brother and sister and marriage. It doesn't say romantically attached but not really ready to do but kind of enjoying and kind of but maybe not and for now and maybe in somebody else someday. If I love you doesn't mean for a lifetime then what does it mean? What's it mean? You want it simple? Don't say it until you're ready to back it up with action. What action? Sex? No. Some people do that. They'll say, I love you to get sex. Some people say, I love you so that they can have that relationship. Some people say it so they can exclusively date. How about this? Say, I love you when you're ready to say, will you marry me? Don't blow it in that. There's three kinds of lovers in the world. I love you if... And that's what most people mean when they say, I love you. I love you because... And that's what others mean when they say, I love you. But I love you biblically, in an agape sense, means I love you in spite of, and I'm still committed to you. Real, genuine, sincere, biblical love doesn't break up. It doesn't get a divorce. It endures all things and stays committed to an imperfect person. Now wait, Rick. Does that mean you can never break up? Absolutely not. Does that mean if I've said I love you, that's the same as saying, will you marry me? No. Change that perspective now. Rather, you should reserve those words as the communication of a permanent relational commitment, either as a brother or sister in Christ or as a marriage partner, not a romantic partner in between those two without any clear direction. had a good conclusion, but we're out of time. We don't have enough to go on to the next, next point, which is the communication principle. So come back next week. Isn't this a terrible way to end? I feel like John MacArthur. Well, we're done. Come back next week. And he's good enough. He doesn't have to have a conclusion. But it's real clear that we can't finish this in the time that we need to. Next week, come back. We'll, or two weeks from today, we'll finish up the last three principles. And I think you'll be really encouraged. Sorry about that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's so uh, difficult to be learners of all this truth and not able to dig as deeply as we want to or to be as intimate with it as we need be. I pray for these students, Lord. Some of this stuff might have been some heavy stuff for them to consider for the first or maybe in a refreshed time. Give us the grace to obey and the heart to endure and the, the life that wants to learn exactly what you have for us. Pray for the relationships that are ongoing and the relationships that are budding in this room, that you'll keep them holy and pure and define the relationship and the love that they share according to your truth. Keep us above reproach. Biblical siblings that will love each other so much that when we say I love you to each other as siblings, we know exactly what that means. 
And Father, help us to say that more. But when we say, I love you, in a romantic sense, we know exactly what that means. In the shadow of that, Lord, I love these students. I love these people. The joy of my heart is to see them walking in the truth and to see them understanding in a deeper fashion the things that pertain to you. Guard them, protect them, honor them, and keep them, Lord. Make them committed to you. Then they'll know how to be committed to each other. You've been so good to us, Lord. Thank you for this time together. Bring us back in the coming weeks to finish up this series and to become and to find the right kind of person. In Jesus' name, amen.